Section seven of Orientations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Brenda. Orientations by W. Smith Edmond. Section seven. The choice of Amintas. Part two. When Amintas, on his departure, shyly offered some remuneration for his entertainment, it was with an exquisite southern grace that she relieved him of his ten golden guineas, and he almost felt she was doing him a favour as she carelessly rattled the coins into a silken purse, and if he was a little dismayed to see his treasure go so speedily, he was far too delicate-minded to betray any emotion that he resolved to lose no time in finding out the offices of the wealthy Tiffel. But Van Tiffel was no longer in Cardiff. On the outbreak of the treaty, the Spanish authorities had given the Dutch merchant four-and-twenty hours to leave the country, and had seized his property, making him understand that it was only by a signal mercy that his life was spared. Amintas rushed down to the harbour in dismay. The good ship Calderon had already sailed, Amintas cursed his luck. He cursed himself. Above all, he cursed the lovely Spanish lady whose charms had caused him to delay his search for Van Tiffel till the ship had gone on his eastward journey. After looking long and wistfully at the sea, he turned back into the town and rambled melancholy through the streets, wondering what would become of him. Soon the pangs of hunger assailed him and he knew the discomfort of a healthy English appetite. He hadn't a single farthing, and even Scotch poets, when they come to London to set the Thames on fire, are wont to put a half-crown piece in their pockets. Amintas meditated upon the folly of extravagance, the indiscretion of youth and the wickedness of woman. He tightened his belt and walked on. At last, feeling weary and faint with hunger, he lay down on the steps of a church and there spent the night. When he awoke next morning, he soon remembered that he had slept supperless. He was breathless. Suddenly his eye, looking across the square, caught sight of a bookshop, and it occurred to him that he might turn to account the books which his father and the parson had given him. He blessed his foresight. The Bible fetched nothing, but Aristotle brought him enough to keep him from starvation for a week. Having satisfied his hunger, he set about trying to find work. He went to booksellers and told them his accomplishments. But no one could see any use in the knowledge of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew Bible. He applied at shops, growing bolder with necessity. He went into merchants' office and to great men's porters, but all with great civility sent him about his business, and poor Amintas was no more able to get work than nowadays the professional tram or the secretary of a trades union. Four days he went on, trying here and trying there, eating figs and melons and bread, drinking water, sleeping beneath archways or on the steps of churches and he dreamed of the home of roast beef and ale which he had left behind him. Every day he became more disheartened, but at last he rose up against fate. He cursed it ironically. Every man's hand was against him. His hand should be against every man. He would be a brigand. He shook off his feet the dust of Cardiff, and boldly went into the country to find the band of free companions, he stopped herdsmen and peddlers and asked them where brigands were. 
they pointed to the mountains and to the mountains he turned his face he would join the band provoke a quarrel with the chief kill him and be made chief in his stead then he would scour the country in a velvet mask and a peaked hat with a feather in it carrying fire and desolation everywhere a price would be set on his head but he would snap his fingers in the face of the prime minister he would rule his followers with an iron hand but now he was in the midst of the mountains and there were not the smallest size of lawless folk not even the gibbets with the skeleton hanging in chains to show where lawless folk had been he sought high and low but he never saw a living soul besides a few shepherds clothed in skins it was most disheartening once he saw two men crouching behind a rock and approached them but as soon as they saw him they ran away and although he followed them shouting that they were not to be afraid since they wanted to be a brigand too they paid no attention but only ran the faster and at last he had to give up the chase for want of breath one can't be a robber chief all by oneself nor is it given to everyone in this world to be a brigand amintas found that even heroes have their limitations one day making his way along a rocky path he found a swineherd guarding his flock good morrow said the man and asked amintas whither he was found god knows answered amintas i am wandering at chance and know not where i go well youth stay the night with me and to-morrow you can set out again and return for your company i will give you food and shelter amintas accepted gratefully for he had been feeding on herbs for a week and the prospect of goat's milk cheese and black bread was like the feast of trimalchion when amintas had said his story the herdsman told him that there was a rich man in the neighbouring village he wanted a swineherd and in the morning showed him the way to the rich man's house i will come a little way with you lest you take the wrong path they walked along the rocky track and presently the way divided this path to the right leads to the village said the man and this one to the left swineherd the swineherd crossed himself ah that is the path of evil fortune it leads to the cursed coffin a cold wind blew across their faces come away said the herdsman shuddering do you not feel on your face the cold breath of it tell me what it is said amintas he stood looking at the opening between the low trees it's a lake of death a lake beneath the mountain and the roof of it is held up by marble columns which were never wrought by the hand of man come away do you not feel in your face the cold breath of it he dragged amintas away along the path that led to the village and when the way was clear before him turned back returning to his swine but amintas ran after him tell me what they say of that cursed coffin they say many things some say it is a treasure house of the moors where they have left their wealth some say it is an entrance to the enchanted land some say it is an entrance to hell itself venturous men have gone in to discover the terrible secret but none has returned to tell it amintas wandered slowly towards the village where his dreams to end in the herding of swine what was this cavern of which the herdsman spoke he felt a strange impulse to go back and look at the dark opening between the little trees from which blew the cold wind but perhaps the rich man had a beauteous daughter history is full of the social successes of swineherds 
Amintas felt a strange thrill as the dark lick came before his mind. He almost heard the lapping of the water. King's daughters had often looked upon lowly swineherds and raised them to golden thrones, but he could not help going to look again at the dark opening between the little trees. He walked back and again the cold breath blew against his face. He felt in it the icy coldness of the water. It drew him in. He separated the little trees on either side. He walked on as if a hidden power urged him, and now the path became less clear. Trees and bushes grew in the way and hindered him. Brambles and long creeping plants twisted about his legs and pulled him back. But the wind with its coldness of the black water drew him on. The birds of the air were hushed, and not one of the thousand insects of the wood uttered a note. Great trees above him hid the light. The silence was ghastly. He felt as if he were the only person in the world. Suddenly he gave a cry. He had come to the end of the forest, and before him he saw the opening of the cavern. He looked in. He saw black, stagnant water, motionless and heavy, and as far as the eye could reach, sombre pillars covered with green, moist slime. They stood half out of the water, supporting the roof, and from the roof oozed moisture which fell in heavy drops, in heavy drops continually. At the entrance was a little skiff with a paddle in it. Aminta stood at the edge. Dared he venture? What could there be behind that darkness? The darkness was blacker than the blackest night. He stepped into the boat. Should he go? With beating heart he untied the rope. He hardly dared to breathe. He pushed away. He looked to the right and left, paddling slowly. On all sides, he saw the slimy column stretching regularly into the darkness. The light of the open day grew dimmer as he advanced. The air became colder. He looked eagerly around him, paddling slowly. Already he half repented the attempt. The boat went along easily, and the black and heavy water hardly splashed as he drew his paddle through it. Still, nothing could be seen but the even ranks of pillars. Then, all at once, the night grew blacker, and again the cold wind arose and blew in his face. Everywhere was the ghastly silence and the darkness. A shiver went through him. He could not bear it. In an agony of terror, he turned his pedal to go back. Whatever might be the secret of the cavern, or the reward of the adventure, he dared go no further. He must get back quickly to the open air and the blue sky. He drew his paddle through the water. The boat did not turn. He gave a cry. He pulled with all his might. The boat only lurched a little and went on its way. He set his teeth and backed. His life depended upon it. The boat swam on. A cold sweat broke out over him. He put all his strength in his stroke. The boat went on, into the darkness swiftly and silently. He paused a little to regain force. He stifled a sob of horror and despair. Then he made a last effort. The skiff whirled round into another avenue of columns, and the paddle shivered into atoms against a pillar. The little light of the cavern entrance was lost, and there was utter darkness. Amintas cowered down in the boat. He gave up hope of life and lay there for long hours, awaiting his end. 
A water-carried skiff along swiftly, silently. The darkness was so heavy that the columns were invisible. Heavy drops fell into the water from the roof. How long would it last? Would the boat go on till he died and then speed on forever? He thought of the others who had gone into the coffin. Were there other boats hurrying eternally along the heavy waters, bearing cold skeletons? He covered his face with his hands and moaned. But he started up. The night seemed less black. He looked intently. Yes, he could distinguish the outlines of the pillars dimly, so dimly that he thought he saw them only in imagination, and soon he could see distinctly their massive shapes against the surrounding darkness, and as gradually the night thinned away in the dim twilight, he saw that the columns were different from those at the entrance of the cavern. They were no longer covered with weed and slime. The marble was polished and smooth, and the water beneath him appeared less black. The skiff went on so swiftly that the petrol sequence of the pillars tired his eyes, but their grim severity gave way to round columns less forbidding and more graceful. As the light grew clearer, there was almost a tinge of blue in the water. Amintas was filled with wonder, for the columns became lighter and more decorated surmounted by capitals adorned with strange sculptures some were green some were red others were yellow or glistening white they mirrored themselves in the sapphire water gradually the roof raised itself and the columns became more slender from them sprang lofty arches gorgeously ornamented and always gold and silver and rich colour the water turned to dazzling translucent blue so that Amintas could see hundreds of feet down to the bottom, and the bottom was covered with golden sand, and the light grew and grew till it was more brilliant than the clearest day. Gradually the skiff slowed down and it swam leisurely towards the light source, threading its way beneath the horseshoe arches among the columns, and these gathered themselves into two lines to form a huge avenue surmounted by a vast span, and at the end, in a splendour of light, Amintas saw a wondrous palace, with steps leading down to the water. The boat glided towards it, and the steps ceased moving. At the same moment, the silver doors of the palace were opened, and from them issued black slaves, magnificently apparelled. They descended to Amintas, and with courteous gestures assisted him out of the boat. Then two other slaves, even more splendidly attired than their fellows, came down and led Amintas slowly and with great state into the court of the palace, at the end of which was a great chamber. Into this they motioned the youth to enter. They made him the lowest possible bows and retired, letting a curtain fall over the doorway. But immediately the curtain was raised and other slaves came in, bearing gorgeous robes and all kinds of necessaries for the toilet with much ceremony they proceeded to bathe and scent the fortunate creature they polished and dyed his fingernails they pencilled his eyebrows and faintly darkened his long eyelashes they put precious balsam on his hair then they clothed him in silken robes glittering with gold and silver they put the daintiest red morocco shoes on his feet a jewelled chain about his neck rings on his fingers and in his turban a rich diamond finally they placed before him a gigantic mirror and left him
everything had been conducted in complete silence and amintas throughout had preserved the most intense gravity but when he was alone he gave a little silence laugh of delight it was obvious that at last he was to be rewarded according to his deserts he looked at the rings on his fingers resisting a desire to put one or two of them in his pocket in case of a future rainy day then catching sight of himself in the mirror he started was that really himself how very delightful he made sure that no one could see and then began to make a bow to himself in the mirror he walked up and down the room observing the stateliness of his gesture he waved his hands in a lordly and patronizing fashion he turned himself round to look at his back he was very annoyed that he could not see his profile he came to the conclusion that he looked every inch a king's son and his inner consciousness told him that consequently the king's daughter could not be far off but he would explore his palace he girded his sword about him it was a scimitar of beautiful workmanship and the scabbard was encrusted with precious stones from the court he passed into many wonderful rooms one leading out of the other there were rich carpets on the marble floors and fountains played softly in the centre the walls were inlaid with rare marbles but he never saw a living soul in the last hour aminta had become fully alive to his great importance and carried himself accordingly he took long dignified steps and held one hand on the jeweled hilt of his sword with his elbows stuck out at right angles to his body his hat was thrown back proudly and his nostrils dilated with appropriate scorn at last he came to a door closed by a curtain he raised it but he started back and was so surprised that he found no words to express his emotions four maidens were sitting in the room more beautiful than he had thought possible in his most extravagant dreams the gods had evidently not intended amintas for single blessedness the young persons appeared not to have noticed him two of them were seated on rugs playing a languid game of chess the others were lazily smoking cigarettes mate murmured one of the players oh sighed the other yawning another game finished that makes five million and twenty-three games against your five million and seventy-nine they all yawned but amintas felt he must give notice of his presence and suddenly remembering an expression he had learned on board ship he put on a most ferocious look and cried out shiver my timbers the maidens turned towards him with a little cry but they quickly recovered themselves and one of them came towards him you speak like a king's son o oh youth she said there was a moment's hesitation and the lady with a smile added oh ardently expected one you are a compendium of the seven excellences then they all began to pay him compliments each one capping the other's remarks you have a face like the full moon o oh youth your eyes are the eyes of the gazelle your walk is like the gaze of the mountain partridge your chin is as an apple your cheeks are pomegranates but amintas interrupted them for god's sake madam he said let us have no palavering and if you love me give me some victuals immediately female slaves came in with salvers laden with choice food and the four maidens plied amintas with delicacies at the end of the repast they sprinkled him with rose-water and the eldest of them 
but a crown of roses on his hair. Amyntas thought that, after all, life was not an empty dream. And now, may it please you, a stranger, to hear our story. Know then that our father was a Moor, one of the wealthiest of his people, and he dwelt with his fellows in Spain, honoured and beloved. Now, when Allah, whose name be exalted, decreed that our nation should be driven from the country, he, unwilling to leave the land of his birth, built him, with the aid of magic arts, this palace. Here he brought us, his four daughters, and all his riches. He peopled it with slaves and filled it with all necessary things, and here we lived in peace and prosperity for many years. But at last a great misfortune befell us, for our father, who was a very learned man and accustomed to busy himself with many abstruse matters, when they got lost in a metaphysical speculation, and has never been found again. Here she stopped, and they all sighed deeply. We searched high and low, but in vain, and he has not been found to this day. So we took his will, and having broken the seal, read the following. My daughters, I know by my wisdom that the time will come when I shall be lost to you. Then you will live alone, enjoying the riches and the pleasures which I have put at your disposal. But I foresee that at the end of many years a youth will find his way to this your palace, and though my magic arts have been able to build this paradise for your habitation, though they have endowed you with perpetual youth and loveliness, and greatest deed of all, have banished hence the dark shadow of death, yet have they not the power to make four maidens live in happiness and unity with but one man. Therefore I have given unto each of you certain gifts, and of you four the youth shall choose one to be his love, and to him and her shall belong this palace, and all my riches, and all my power, while the remaining three shall leave everything here to these two, and depart hence forever. Now, gentle youth, it is with you to choose which of us four you will have remained. Amyntas looked at the four damsels standing before him, and his heart beat violently. I, resumed the speaker, I am the eldest of the four, and it is my right to speak first. She stepped forward and stood alone in front of Amyntas. Her aspect was most queenly, her features beautiful and clear, her eyes proud and fiery, and masses of raven hair contrasted with the red flaming of her garments. With an imperious gesture, she flung back her hair and spoke thus. No use that the gift which my father gave me was the gift of war, and I have the power to make great warrior of him, whose love I am. I will make you a king, youth. You shall command mighty armies, and you shall lead them to battle on a prancing horse. Your enemies shall quail before your face, and at last you shall die no sluggard's death but pinched by honourable wounds, and fields of battle shall be your deathbed. A nation shall mourn your loss, and your name shall go down famous to after ages. You are very beautiful, said Amyntas, but I am not so eager for warlike exploits as when I wander through the green lanes of my native land. Let me hear the others. A second stepped forward. She was clad most gorgeously of all. A crown of diamonds was on her head, and her robes were of clothes of gold sewn with rubies and emeralds and sapphires. 
the gift i have to give is wealth riches riches innumerable riches greater than man can dream of do you want to be a king the riches i can give will make you one do you want armies riches can procure them do you want victory riches can buy it all these that my sister offers you can i with my riches give you and more than that for everything in the world can be got with riches and you shall be all-powerful take me to be your love and i will make you the lord of gold naminta smiled you forget lady that i am but twenty the third stepped forward she was beautiful and pale and thoughtful her hair was yellow like corn when the sun is shining on it and her dress was green like the young grass of the spring she spoke without the animation of the others mournfully rather than proudly and she looked at amintas with melancholy eyes i am the lady of art all that is beautiful and good and wise is in my province live with me i will make you a poet and you shall sing beautiful songs you shall be wise and in perfect wisdom o youth is perfect happiness the poet has said that wisdom is weariness o lady said amintas my father is a poet he has written ten thousand latin hexameters and a large number of greek iambics then came forward the last as she stood before amintas a cry burst from him he had never in his life seen anyone so ravishingly beautiful she was looking down and her long eyelashes prevented her eyes from being seen but her lips were like a perfect rose and her skin was like a peach her hair fell to her waist in great masses of curls and a sparkling auburn many-hued and indescribable changed in the sunbeams from richest brown to gold tinged with deep red she wore a simple tunic of thin silk clasped at her waist with a jewelled belt of gold she stood before amintas letting him gaze then suddenly she lifted her eyes to his amintas heart gave a mighty beat against his chest her eyes her eyes were the very lights of love carrying passionate kisses on their beams a sob of ecstasy choked the youth and he felt that he could kneel down and worship before them slowly her lips broke into a smile and her voice was soft and low i am the lady of love she said look she raised her arms and the thin loose sleeves falling back displayed their roundness in exquisite shape she lifted her head and aminta thrilled to cover her neck with kisses at last she loosened her girdle and when the silken tunic fell to her feet she stood before him in perfect loveliness i cannot give you fame or riches or wisdom i can only give you love 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 oh what an eternity of delight shall we enjoy in one another's arms come my beloved come yes i come my darling Aminta stepped forward with outstretched arms and took her hands in his i take you for my love i want not wealth nor great renown but only you you will give me love alluring kisses and we will live in never-ending please he drew her to him and with his arms round her pressed back her hat and covered her lips with kisses and while amintas lost his soul in the eyes of his beloved the three sisters went sadly away 
They ascended the stately barge which awaited them, and the water bore them down the long avenue columns into the darkness. After a long time they reached the entrance of the cavern, and having placed a great stone against it that none might enter more, they separated, wandering in different directions. The Lady of War passed through Spain, finding none there worthy of her. She crossed the mountains, and presently she fell in love with a little artillery officer, and raised him to dignity and power, and together they ran through the lands, wasting and burning, making women widows and children orphans, ruthless, unsparing, caring for naught but the voluptuousness of blood. But she sickened of the man at last and left him. Then the blood he had spilt rose up against him, and he was cast down and died in exile on a lonely isle. And now they say she dwells in the palaces of her youth with a withered hand. Together they rule a mighty empire, and their people cry out at the oppression, but the ruler heeds nothing but the burning kisses of his love. The Lady of Riches, too, passed out of Spain, but she was not content with one love nor with a hundred. She gave her favours to the first comer, and every one was welcome. She wandered carelessly through the world, but chiefly she loved an island in the north, and in its capital she has her palace, and the inhabitants of the isle have given themselves over, body and soul, to her domination. They pander and lie and cheat, and forswear themselves. To gain her smile, they will shrink from no base deed, no meanness, and she, too, makes women widows and children orphans. But her subjects care not. They are fat and well content. The goddess smiles on them, and they are the richest in the world. The lady of art has not found an emperor nor a mighty people to be her lovers. She wanders lonely through the world. Now and then a youthful dreamer sees her in his sleep and devotes his life to her pursuit. But the way is hard, very hard. So he turns aside to worship at the throne of her sister of riches, and she repays him for the neglect he has suffered. She showers gold upon him and makes him one of her knights. But sometimes the youth remains faithful and goes through his life in the endless search. And at last, when his end has come, she comes down to the garret in which he lies cold and dead, and stooping down, kisses him gently, and lo, he is immortal. But as for Amintas, when the sisters had retired, he again took his bride in his arms and covered her lips with kisses, and she, putting her arms round his neck, said with a smile, I have waited for you so long, my love, so long. And here it is fit that we should follow the example of the three sisters and retire also. The moral of this story is that if your godfathers and godmothers at your baptism give you a pretty name, you will probably marry the most beautiful woman in the world and live happily ever afterwards. And the platitudinous philosopher may marvel at the tremendous effects of the most insignificant causes but if Amintas had been called Peter or John, as his mother wished, William the Second might be eating sauerkraut as peacefully as his ancestors. The Lord Mayor of London might not drive about in a gilded carriage, and possibly even Mr. Everett Austin might not be poet laureate. End of section seven.